Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 501 of the podcast and it is Friday the 7th of August 2020 as I record this. So today I'm talking to Susie K. Quinn about how to write a bestseller and I took her course of the same name through Mark Dawson's self-publishing formula and found it fascinating. I highly recommend the course as it goes into a lot of detail but in this interview we talk about writing a marketing plan before writing a book packaging and positioning, supply and demand and much more. So it's a kind of business angle on a craft topic and the course does go into a lot more detail and I should say up front I'm not an affiliate of the course, I just found it really useful so I wanted to talk to Susie. And for context on parts of our discussion, we recorded this a few months back in the earlier days of the pandemic. So thanks for all your wonderful emails and tweets and comments on episode 500. It seems like it resonated with a lot of you and I had so many responses and emails and tweets and comments and Patreon things and so I'm not going to read any out because I feel like I would miss out on people. So I've been emailing people back and responding and I'm just so happy that it resonated and that many of you found it useful. And it is so funny looking back. I'm glad I marked the occasion because it does feel like a big milestone. And it was a lot of work, but I'm really glad I did it. And I think I'll look back on that with interest. And in terms of my other work, I'm still doing a load of cleanup on my fiction books, redoing back matters, updating all kinds of things. And it's a lot of toing and froing. One very interesting issue is how hard it is to change a series name on Kindle and the tech guys have been working on it at Amazon for like a week already and my husband who's a programmer had did have a look at the code on Amazon.com at one point and said yeah it's kind of layers and layers at this point and if you think about the Amazon.com website it has been running pretty much uptime 99.9% since the 90s. <laughs> So there's probably all these layers and layers of info and hopefully we'll get that sorted because as soon as that's sorted, I can start doing promotions again. So I'm doing a bit of clean up there. But as I mentioned in big episode 500, Jonathan is going back to a day job and that will happen towards the end of the month. And although he'll still be here, he's still working from home. So it won't be any different in our daily life. So we're trying to have a bit more relaxing time together. This morning we walked up the hill and it is lovely. It's pretty hot here right now. And we're going to go to Oxford for our wedding anniversary number 12. <laughs> and I have put the pre-order up on Tree of Life, Arcane Thriller book 11. And I've put that up for early December. So I'm not stressing myself up too much. But it's the first time I've ever put up a pre-order when I haven't finished the first draft. <laughs> so I'm pushing myself a little bit. It's a little bit scary, but I know I can manage it on that timeline. But I'm not going to get started until we're in our new routine, which is coming up. So I'm just uh, enjoying having a bit of a rest, doing house things, as I think many of us have in lockdown done many of these. And we're not really in lockdown here in the UK, but it's still no, no travel for no reason, unreasonable travel, whatever you want to call it. But 
we are not going very far from home at the moment. So a couple of things in publishing and useful news. First of all, very interesting on Selling Direct. So entrepreneur Derek Sivers, who has some books out as well and has turned much more into an author and a blogger these days. Derek put out a blog post this week where he talks about selling $250,000 worth of books direct to his email list, and that is ebooks and audiobooks. And Derek is the entrepreneur who founded CD Baby and sold it for millions. And he decided early to, he was an independent musician and he supported independent musicians. And he now writes books. And as I said, and he did actually give away that money, but it's the principle of the thing that's interesting. Now, clearly Derek is pretty famous in the entrepreneur niche, but that doesn't mean we can't do it either. And I just looked at my accounts and for last tax year and I made three and a half thousand US dollars by selling direct last year. And it's not massive, but it's not to be sneezed at and it is growing. I'm excited about that. I do think that it's something for everyone to consider as we move on into whatever the future may look like. Selling direct means you own that relationship with your customer. So I'm not at Derek's level yet. You're probably not at Derek's level (laughs) in terms of the size of your email list. But uh, I do think that more selling direct is going to be important to a long-term creative future. And it's another form of income. And I talked about this early on in the pandemic because quite a big chunk of that money was made in one email to my list. Very exciting possibilities for that in the future. And then a couple of useful things that I wanted to mention. First of all, David Gochran's new book, Amazon Decoded, is out. I think it's excellent. I was reading it last night. I don't normally read non-fiction like self-helpy stuff before sleeping, but I was like, oh, I just arrived and started reading it. And David is an excellent writer, excellent teacher. He's coming on the podcast in the next month or so, a couple of months. I can't remember when, but we've done the interview. So he is coming on. And there are a lot of indie author urban myths about the algorithms And this book really goes through what you need to know. So that's Amazon Decoded by David Gochran. Another new useful book, which is probably aimed more at the basic end, which is 150 Self-Publishing Questions Answered by Michael Leron and the Alliance of Independent Authors. Michael has been on the show. He's going to come back also to talk about this book. But this really does answer a lot of questions. So if you are new to self-publishing, or even if you're more established, I think 150 questions is pretty detailed. (laughs) So definitely check that out. And a couple of other things this week, the BookBub blog team, they are excellent. They have put together the ultimate collection of audiobook marketing examples. And I have downloaded that and looking at that, even though I've got a book on audio for authors and it has a whole chapter on audiobook marketing. I'm always learning and the BookBub blog is superb, basically. And if you want to sell more audiobooks, you can go get that. It is free from their website. And the other one I wanted to mention, the Six Figure Author podcast with Lindsay, Joe and Andrea is this week, which is episode 50, I think it is. I didn't write it down, (laughs) but that is on leveling up your income, either up to five figures or to six figures. So obviously it's the six figure author podcast, but Lindsay, Joe and Andrea talk about various tips on taking your author income to the next level. So that is one of the podcasts that I listen to most weeks, depending on who the guests are. But as I've said many times, I learn a lot from other authors and we should always be learning. That is the only way to keep a career going. 
Okay, so today's show is sponsored by Draft to Digital, and I'll play a word from the lovely Kevin Tomlinson in a minute. And if you didn't know, Draft to Digital actually also have a podcast, Self Publishing Insiders, which has interviews and tips from successful indie authors, so you can learn much more. So definitely check that out. I will be on that show. I already did it with Kevin a while back, but I think the audio is coming out later, but that was fun anyway. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. It demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue as we head on to episode 600, (laughs) which is kind of crazy. The other thing that happened this week is Patreon have updated their settings. So it used to be you could only pledge in US dollars, but now you can actually pledge in several currencies, US dollars, GBP, so pounds, British pounds and euros. So if that was stopping you or if you want to change your currency, you can do that now. And thank you for your support of the show wherever you are in the world. And just in case you don't know how Patreon works, basically you uh, say you'll support for, say, a couple of dollars a month. And then what happens is you can stop your support at any time. This is not some forever pledge. This is you can pop in and out. And I know it's a difficult time for people. So I really appreciate those of you who are still supporting the show. And also those of you who have and no longer can, I completely get it. It really is that time in history. (laughs) So thank you to new patrons in the last couple of weeks. Obviously, I didn't do any of this last week. And it's also a bumper crop thanks to episode 500. So thank you, everyone. Thanks to SK Randolph, Steve Blankenship, Adam McKay, Sandra K. Stanton Heimbigner, Miriam Giles, Gif Constable, Mary Rose, Bruce James Wilkinson, Joe Kunzler, Nati Doe, Rona Witte, Richard D. Miller and R.J. Barrett. Thank you to everyone who has also restarted their pledges. I appreciate that too. And you can support the show for just a couple of dollars a month or a couple of coffees a month if you fancy. And you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio, including the back plus 10% off my online courses, which includes your author business plan, which is turning out to be one of my most popular courses at the moment. I think many people are revisiting their business plan after COVID or during COVID, I guess. We're not over it yet. So you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from Draft to Digital, and then we'll get on to the interview. Hey, this is Kevin Thompson with Draft to Digital, and we love libraries. Everyone at Draft to Digital first discovered a love for reading at their local library, and chances are you did too. That's why we've put a big focus on building up library distribution for D2D authors. With a catalog of library distributors that reaches thousands of public, academic, and business libraries all over the planet. Overdrive, Biblioteca, Baker & Taylor, Hoopla, we just keep adding new ways for you to reach library patrons everywhere. And we're including new ways to make some money with innovations such as cost per checkout, a royalty structure that lets libraries check out as many copies of your books as they need, helping you reach eager patrons and get paid as you go. Find out more about how draft digital works with libraries and you at drafttodigital.com slash library dash pricing. Susie K. Quinn is the best-selling author of romance, comedy, and thrillers. 
She also teaches a course on how to write a bestseller for Mark Dawson's self-publishing formula, and it is a fantastic course. I've taken it myself and we're talking about it today. So welcome, Susie. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for coming on the show. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. So I've been writing for years, really, probably the same as you. I reckon it's a really common story with most writers. You start as a kid, when you're seven or eight, you start writing stories, and then you just carry on with it, really. So it's quite hard to pinpoint, isn't it, when you first identify with writing as a career. It usually comes in bits and pieces. I was a journalist first, and then always writing books in the background. And then I was first published when I was 30 with Holland and Stoughton. And yeah, it just went from there, really. It's been a while. But it's been a lot of fun, mostly. <laughs> mostly, yeah. But the course is fantastic, as I said. Let's get into it, because I feel like the word bestseller has a lot of issues for people, and that people have different ideas of what bestseller is. So can you start by saying, what are we really aiming for when we're saying bestseller? Is it an orange label, or is it breakout Dan Brown? Okay, so when you say issues for people, do you mean in terms of how it quantifies? Is that what you mean? Like people would have an issue with what would be termed a bestseller. Some people might think it's one thing, some people might think it's something else. Yeah, so what are you defining it as? So is I in the publishing industry, I'd say a bestseller is 100,000 copies per book. So a bestselling book will be seen as, in the publishing industry, 100,000 copies has been sold. But even the publishing industry themselves say that's quite a loose definition. It's, it is a little bit wishy-washy. So if you've been on New York Times bestseller list or you're being visible in the charts, I think it's reasonable to say you're a bestseller. But in my head, the standard definition is 100,000 copies. And over what period? I don't think it matters, really. I think it's, if you've sold 100,000 copies, it's seen as a bestseller. But from a publishing industry point of view, what do you need the definition for? Is it so that you can feel the authors can give themselves a badge to say they've been a best-selling author. Yeah, I think what's interesting is within the indie author community, if you get to number one on Amazon in a subcategory, you will get an orange label on your book that says bestseller. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought many people, even in the indie community, would term themselves a bestseller on that basis. I think you'd say you were a bestseller in the such and such category. You were a parenting bestseller or you were a romantic comedy bestseller. I don't think, I'm going to guess most people wouldn't call themselves a bestseller if they're in the category. But I'm thinking, do you mean you think some people might be duplicitous or people who are confused by that label that you don't have to sell that many copies to be a bestseller in those categories? Yeah, I don't think it's about being duplicitous. I think it is literally that many people, including myself, have never been in traditional publishing. So I didn't even know what you just said. I didn't know that 100,000 copies per book was what traditional publishing call it. I guess I wanted to get clear at the outset. This is not about category hacking on Amazon, (laughs) which is something that indie authors get obsessed with. But that's not what you're talking about. You're actually talking, I think, more about a sort of breakout success which would be noticed across the publishing industry, which is fantastic. Yeah, I will be talking about is the level of book that would earn you a really good income, personally define it. So you're able to sell books consistently that earn you a really decent living and not a £10,000 a year average author novelist earnings living, a really decent living. So £40,000, £50,000 a year plus. So in dollars, I don't know, 70000 a year. So if you're earning a decent professional wage, as a minimum, that would be what I would be terming. And if you're earning that, you, I'd say you're pretty much in the best-selling camp. Which is excellent. So I'm glad we've got that up front because 
I certainly wanted to go through the material as how do you take things to the next level. So let's get into it in more detail because you start off the course with the biggest mistake that authors make if they're aiming for a bestseller. And there's so much in the course, but I wrote lots of notes on this initial stuff. So tell us, you know, what is that? The biggest mistake really is coming to writing a book without a marketing plan. So doing the marketing plan afterwards, I would say. Coming to your novel just with your sort of idea without any idea of, so with your story idea, but without any idea of who your audience is going to be and who you're writing for. Yes. And so I think the biggest thing that people react against with that is, so does that mean I have to write to market or can I write a book that I love? I think good authors sail somewhere through the middle. So they've got an understanding that they want to create something for readers, that readers understand that they know what product they're buying. But at the same time, it's got something original and something of the author in that book. It's not just a kind of carbon copy of a genre type book. It's it's something original as well. I would say in terms of, I feel you can do both. So I think it's not an either or to say that if you're looking at what readers want, you can't do what you love. Because I think all of us, we all want to write things that readers love. It almost comes before what we want in a way. We're writing for people to see it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be writers. We'd just be hobby poets or hobby storytellers for, for ourselves. I suppose one of the things I feel is important as a writer is that you're recognised for your stories and what you're doing. That comes from readers loving them. So it's because they're, all, they're very interlinked, those two things. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. But I think there's a lot of different subgenres that we could write. But you talk a lot about the idea of a book package. It's great language because I hadn't really, I'd heard this from people like Seth Godin, who talk about being a book packager back in the day. But I hadn't really thought about what we do as having a package. So could you tell us more about what is the book package? Really, before you start writing a book, I would say it's really important to have a really strong title, an idea of the group of people you're writing for. So you could look at that in terms of genre. So you have a decision in terms of are you writing crime? Are you writing thrillers? Are you writing romance? Or just a specific group of people who will be attracted to, say, cyber enthusiasts or people who like horses or something like that. Like you, a specific group of people who will be uniquely interested in what you're writing. And then that with a really good title. And I'm not saying when you write your book that you can't change the title because you definitely can. But if you can start off with a really strong title and a kind of hooky one sentence premise to get people that would get people interested in reading the book, then I think you're on to a really good start before you start writing. Yes. (laughs) And I know people are going, well, how do I come up with a hooky one sentence premise? And it's funny because I was really thinking about my own books and I often, well, I do come up with my tagline, I've written the book, whereas you're really suggesting we come up with that beforehand. So if we need to come up with that beforehand, what are some of your tips for coming up with that? I would say, I mean, everyone's different. So if you really feel that you can't do it beforehand, there are are plenty of best-selling writers who don't. But I would say it gives you the best chance, really, especially if you're new to things and you haven't got an audience already, you haven't got a fan base. It really gives you a good chance. So tips in terms of writing a hooky kind of premise. It's one of those things, isn't it? You can't, it's like me saying, telling you how to write, how to write, because you're a writer. So I feel like the best tip I can give you is to tell you that you can do it and that you already know how to do it. And just to look out for the other best-selling books. And when you see those best-selling books, what are their hooky premises? Picking apart those. So if you see, so there's a recent bestseller at the moment called The Flat Share. And the premise of that, I don't know if you've heard of it, is a rom-com. It was number one in the charts a few weeks ago. And 
the premise is there's two complete strangers who share a flat and they share a bed, but they've never met each other. And one of them is a night worker and one of them is a, a day worker. So they, one of them has the bed in the nighttime, one has the bed in the daytime. It's a man and a woman. And that's just a great one sentence premise. So I would say look at other books that are, have big concepts like that and see if you can identify what their one sentence or couple of sentence premise is so you can get your head around what that means. And then just wait, the ideas will come to you. You're sailing this kind of course with writing between the cerebral aspect of it and the imaginative aspect. And I think it's the sort of thing that just comes to you when you're not looking for it, when you're having a shower or you're walking somewhere, that, you know, this, this premise or this idea might pop into your head or you're reading something else and you just think, wow, do you know what? At the moment, we've got all the down and the pandemic and the coronavirus and there's all sorts of stories around that. You might think, oh, what if, if I'm thinking of kids, but what if all the adults died of the coronavirus because kids can't get it? And what if that happened? And you just, these kind of ideas can come to you like that. And I think they come to people all the time, but it's just a question of noticing them really and realising how important it is to notice those big ideas and hold on to them and base a book around them rather than writing blindly and hoping ideas come out of it and then trying to pull it all together at the end, which is a lot more difficult. Not impossible, but more difficult. Yes, absolutely. And that's why I wanted to go through the course, because I am a discovery writer and I would like to shift my process into something more prepared in advance. But I wanted to come back on the flat share because you mentioned a title earlier, a strong title, and then something that might suggest something. When you said the flat share, I thought crime or thriller. I don't know why. In my head, I had a like a stalker thing in mind. And then you said it was a rom-com. So when we're talking about titles, especially for fiction, it's really easy for nonfiction. But for fiction titles, are we aiming for something that does give an indication of genre? Or does that tagline just and cover, for example, help that package? It definitely is everything together, really, isn't it? You could I know what you're saying about that share in terms of it could work really well as a thriller or something, you know, the single white female thing. But I combined with a nice image on the cover and a nice tagline and stuff. I think it sends quite clear, you know, messages for the genre it has. So I would say, if possible, your title should convey genre for sure, if possible. If you've got a really strong title, it's a really dynamic title, it really makes people pay attention. And when combined with the concept or a one sentence little premise and a graphic, a photo on the cover, it really sends the message, then I think it's okay, I think it's fine. I think that's something really good to keep in mind because people sometimes we get obsessed with the title but then as you say the title doesn't really exist on its own <laughs> it exists with these other things which is cool so I wonder what you think about cross-genre writing because many authors including myself are cross-genres and sometimes that's actually really hard to market so do you think if you want to write a bestseller you can't write cross-genre or what do you think about it? Oh, no way. You can write a bestseller. The rules are meant to be broken. The aim of this course is to give a really clear, efficient route into writing a bestseller. So if you just absolutely can't pin down one audience and you're writing cross genre and you've come up with something really new and really innovative and really imaginative, then for sure you really believe in it. Of course, it's entirely possible. A good writing is good writing at the end of the day. And there's all sorts of books that reinvent genres as well. There's all sorts of big authors that their own genres. So if you feel, Joe, that you're creating something different and you want to carve something out and you don't want to be hemmed in, then for sure, you go for it. And it sounds like you're doing incredibly so far. So why not? There's no hard and fast rules to it. I think it's a bit like we talk about the package and having clear genre covers. So, for example, so in the UK, talking about crime, like you will know a crime cover by what it looks like. It's quite obvious here what is a British crime novel. And yet, if you look at an American thriller novel, 
it will look quite different. So I feel that we're in this difficult point with independent publishing, whereas in traditional publishing, you would potentially have different publishers, different covers, all of that. But we load up one book onto multiple stores. So in different countries across the world with one cover. And so these seem to be uniquely different challenges. So you feel like as an indie author, it would be tricky to say send clear messages from a thriller cover because there are different thriller messages given in different countries. So in the US, the thriller cover is so different from the UK cover, for example, that it would be difficult to send those messages. Yes. So you have to decide, do you want to appeal to a British crime reading audience or do you want to appeal to an American thriller reading audience or suspense? I would say that there are covers that send very clear international messages. I know what you're saying. There are some differences and there are, but I would say there are, broadly speaking, you can send quite clear messages with covers. The dark colours in a cover are going to indicate more of a thrillery, suspenseful type book. Your kind of light, pastely colours and cartoons and things like that are going to indicate something probably more chiclety and stuff like that. I wouldn't too difficult, really. I don't think you need to get too... With genre, what you're really sending out with genre is what are people going to feel when they read the book? So are people going to feel scared? Are they going to feel excited? Are they going to feel safe and warm and loved? What are the key emotions people are going to get from reading your book which I think is pretty I would suggest it's pretty international and if you really felt strongly that you wanted to send a very specific let's say crime fiction message to the US audience and the UK audience and you wanted different covers to do that you can do that on KDP so you could have two different covers you could upload two different products and sell one in the US and one in the UK Mm. Okay, so I wanted to ask about supply and demand and how we should research that and why it's important. Because I feel like authors, indie authors are very aware of the concepts, but I don't know how much they actually put it into the planning. So if we're looking for a best-selling niche, what would be some of your recommendations for researching that in terms of that supply and demand? So really looking on Amazon, really, I would say, Amazon is like the most amazing research tool for authors who want to find what's selling well, if the sort of thing they're writing about is selling well. And if it isn't, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't write about it exactly because obviously new genres pop up all the time and new types of book pop pop up all the time, like gaming lit, that's a new thing that didn't exist five, 10 years ago. But I would say looking at just categories on Amazon, looking at the bestseller charts on Amazon, studying those often, seeing what is coming up regularly and looking to see, okay, I can see this type of book and it's quite similar to what I write, is a bestseller in this category and it's marketed in this way and just getting your head around all those kind of messages that books send out to readers and help them make that buying decision. And if authors want to pitch traditional publishing, and I know many of my audience do, When we're thinking about that supply and demand, because obviously the traditional publishing engine, it takes a lot longer than indie. So if we're researching on Amazon, that's what has already happened, as opposed to something that might happen down the track. Any thoughts on that sort of when we're pitching? You feel there's a danger that if you're right now looking for a certain genre to fit your book around, that if it's then published and then two years later, that genre might not exist anymore. So you feel that might be... A cautionary. Is that something you think is a difference or should we be researching that on Amazon anyway, even if it's for a future pitch? I think you should be researching it on Amazon anyway, even if it's for, even if it's for a future pitch. And publishers do, I mean, it's what they spend their whole time doing is analysing charts, looking at what's in the top 50 and looking what's selling. And they're buying books based on what's selling at the moment. They're not necessarily buying books for what they think might sell in a year's time because they don't know what that is yet. 
And it's true that publishing is slow and it's true that some trends pass through, but equally, probably because publishing is so slow, I think trends take quite a long time to move through. The only trend I can think that's actually moved through and lessened quite a lot will be the erotica trend after Fifty Shades of Grey. But even so, it's still there. It's still absolutely there. It's still a great big saleable category. And I can't think of, correct me if I'm wrong, can you think of any sort of categories or areas that have now become really unpopular and people don't read anymore? Pandemic lit? (laughs) (laughs) People are reading it at the moment. Well, it's funny, I did actually read an article on that, like they've put out some of these books that talk about pandemic and then I picked up one and I was like, do you know what, I just do not want to read this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the best sellers I know is is literally called Pandemic, isn't it? Whoever wrote that must have felt so pleased in a kind of hopefully not too much of a gratuitous way but there was a wow this is my time I wrote this book called Pandemic you know look what happened we'll see maybe you never know three years five years you might look back and go yeah people are still an appetite they're still no I think you're right even though you might feel like something might have moved on like you mentioned erotica I think the reason it doesn't look so big anymore is because they removed it from a lot of the search but it's certainly still a niche that people are buying and reading. But even like vampires, I think, is the favourite, isn't it? Where it just keeps coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Which um, is- so, you know, some are parts of your question. I wouldn't worry too much about if you want to get traditionally published, should you try and find a niche? For, if, I would say it's even more important because publishers get so many manuscripts that don't really know what they are in terms of where it's going with the audience. So you'll come out so much stronger if you approach your publisher with a real understanding of, OK, this is a crime novel. It's aimed at this, the market who read these kind of books, and it's going to make you look more professional. Absolutely. And then one of the things you said earlier, you said good writing is good writing. And I feel like the word good, if it's used a genre sense, is not so true, as in some people think romance is not as good, in inverted commas, as literary fiction, which I know you wouldn't believe because you write romance as well. But the good writing is good writing. What do you mean by that? I guess if you're writing something that's appealing to readers and you've got a great story there, then they're going to find it anyway, even if you were talking about cross-genre at the time. So if you're writing something that's cross-genre but you've got a really powerful story, then I think it's going to find its readers. You don't need to worry too much, Joe, if you're feeling like you should crystallise completely into one genre, but you're not at the moment. It could be, it just might take longer for books that don't have a really clear sales point to find their audience but when they do often they're even bigger like the Lee Charles and authors like that I think it took longer for them to actually to get the ball rolling people didn't really understand what they were getting at first and then when people did now everyone right or loads of, there are loads of books like Lee Charles because everyone wants that kind of fiction. No I guess many people listening are just writing their first books so the idea of what is good writing when you're aiming for that bestseller because often we're told in literary circles that good writing is a certain type of writing whereas is a bestseller type of writing is that more page turning or they're different types of writing if you're doing a bestseller as opposed to say a literary work. There's no difference there's different types of writing but if you're connecting with readers then you're connecting with readers, it doesn't matter. If you're doing, if the writing is literary style or a more commercial style or a sim- more simple sort of accessible style, if readers enjoy it and they feel something when they're reading it and they connect with it, then it's great. It's what we're aiming to do. No, that's great. So one of the things that many new authors think is that the first book they write is the one that's going to be the bestseller. But what about the long-term view and building an author brand? Yeah, it's it's important to have a long-term view because I guess everyone, when you write, you do have that first book that you absolutely love and is really important to you. And writing a novel when you first do it is really difficult and it takes a really long time. So that first novel feels really important. 
But in terms of a long-term career, you've got to get your head around writing more than one because if you want to be a novelist obviously you're going to be writing for 10 years or 20 years or or what have you so it's a good idea to try and picture whatever you're writing at the moment to try and picture that where would I go next what will be the next three books or five books or ten books could they all fit together could I not necessarily recreate what you've just written but are you willing to create something similar so that all readers can understand what you're about and what you're doing and keep coming back to the same thing? And I think the more you're able to do that, the easier it is for readers to get behind you and keep reading what you write. So you said three books there or five or ten. Are you saying that really series is the way to go as well? So let's say Sophie Kinsella, she has written a series with the Shopaholic, but she also writes other similar chiclet, if that's the right term for it. I'm trying to think of someone else who does similar but different characters each time. A series is much easier because you don't have to recreate characters again. And also if the readers are enjoying that character, if you've really hit the mark with your main character, they're going to want to see that character again. So it could be either. But let's say if you're doing romantic comedy, definitely you could do a romantic comedy with one set of characters and then a sort of something with a similar style, but just a completely different story with different characters, but in the same kind of area, ideally. So the emotional promise of the brand over multiple books. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Mm. And then I guess also because you mentioned there 10 years, 20 years, I imagine some people listening who are just starting out going, what do you mean? Is it going to take that long? Yeah. Do you think that is where we are? And I wonder if the traditional publishing industry makes it seem different because they keep relaunching existing authors with a brand new name. Yeah, it's a tricky one, that, isn't it? I think the reason behind the publishing industry doing that, why they would take an author that's written one thing and then try out with another name, is because I think they're wary of muddying the brand, so doing something that would alienate existing readers. But I feel like in the process of doing that, you're losing your authentic kind of connection with readers. I personally feel like, especially as an indie author, even if you're going in a completely different direction and doing a different sort of book, it's better to make sure your book cover and your title and everything else sends really clear messages to the reader so that they know now you've done, okay, so let's say you've done a romance and now you're going to do a, a thriller and make sure those two books are really clearly packaged and presented as this is completely different. So there's a really awesome video of James Patterson who does loads of different types of books. And he's written recently a kind of diary of a wimpy kid type knockoff, sorry, JP, but, um, <laughs> but you know, similar, similar. And he's so good at really clear biomessages. And there's a video of him holding up one of his thrillers. And he basically says he's holding up his new book, which is I think it's middle grade, might be middle school, I think it's called middle school. So he's holding up the middle school book and he says, this is for kids. And then he holds up his other book, his thriller, and he says, this is not for kids. And he says it probably three times. This is for kids. This is not for kids. So people get a really clear message. This is the same name, but this is these are two completely different products for different audiences. So I think it's okay, different names. Sorry, that wasn't really the question, but I've gone off on a bit of a tangent. Well, I think actually it's a great answer because it annoys me. We're both in the industry and we know people, and I know a number of authors who've been billed as debuts. When they're not debuts, they might have 15 books under another name. <laughs> and then they're kind of being billed by the industry as somebody who's fresh out the box. And I think many new authors who don't know what happens behind the scenes think that you can, out of the box, you can have this bestseller. But I think perhaps that's never been true. Publishers have always encouraged writers to better their craft and then maybe launch them as a new brand. So I like that answer. I think that's great. There is a thing within publishing, I think that publishers, if they can launch someone as a debut to bookshops, it has this kind of shiny new thing that they can go to booksellers and go. So I think 
they're probably on the side of the authors when they're doing that because they're probably trying to create something that is exciting for booksellers can go wow it's a new debut for some reason there's this sort of love affair in publishing and booksellers with the debut an exciting debut novel so maybe they're just being kind to authors there and they're just thinking ah if we retitle you and give you a new name then you can reap the benefits of that but i know what you're saying that if you're a new author you're not necessarily seeing the debut novel if you read this girl on a train for example if you're reading that and you think wow this is an incredible debut but she has written quite a bit before you might have an unrealistic expectation of how good you have to be a debut author, you know? <laughs> no, exactly. But no, I like the fact that you've said as indies, because it's so much work to build a brand for the long term. I've thought, if I write in this other genre, should I start another name? And I'm like, I do not want to start another name. I already have two names. Yeah. I just don't want to do that. So I like the fact that you're saying it's fine. And as you say, James Patterson, dude is the highest earning author in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's um, great. Yeah. Also, as well, on that note, you want an authentic connection with your readers. And how can you be authentic if you've got someone else's name? My name on my books is Susie. And even that I struggle with because my name's Sue. So the Susie is, came about from a Twitter handle. And I don't mind being Susie because everyone at school used to call me Susie. But even that's a struggle. And that's not even far from my real name. If I was called like Jennifer or something, trying to talk to readers and having them, let's say everyone's on Facebook or Twitter and people were calling me that, I would feel really false writing to them so it's yeah I think Dick be authentic being authentic is just a is a good message anyway we're almost out of time so I did have just have one question about what you think because at the moment we're still slightly relaxed lockdown but basically still in lockdown here in the UK and there's a lot of stuff going on in publishing world what do you think will change out of publishing because of the pandemic is everyone now going to go indie or do you think the publishers will roar back I think from what I've heard, and I've heard different stories, some publishers are going to have a bit of a hard time. There's Books are usually sale or return, so there's going to be a lot of stock being returned. If you've got a lot of stock in bookshops and it's being returned, that's going to be tricky. It's going to be a bit of a logjam. Fantastic time for ebook successes, of course. But I think the publishing industry is very bedded in industry, really. It ticks over, doesn't it, the publishing industry? I don't think anything too awful is going to happen. I think it's, when are we going to be unlocked, do you think? July, and people might be able to go and buy books again. I think it will be a bit of a knock, and I feel really bad for smaller publishers. But in terms of, it's a great time to be an indie author. It's vastly preferable to be an indie author now than to be with a publisher, for sure, because you've got so much more control over everything. You're, book, you're mainly focusing on ebook sales, and they're fairly untouchable. Yeah, that would be my good prediction for indie authors. It's a good time. No, that's fantastic. So where can people find you and the course and your books and everything you do online? So the course, so I've just done a course, which is basically secrets of how to write a bestseller. It's an online course. It's like a video course. And it's basically talks you through step by step, a kind of recipe, as it were, for the best, most efficient way to create a bestseller and really give you the best chance of doing that over any painful experiences and difficulties I've struggled over decades of writing. I'd say it's aimed at if you're writing your first novel, but also same thing, if you've been published before and you did well and you don't know how to recreate it, or if you've published it didn't go so well and you're not sure why, it's got all these very handy kind of routes for how to tick the boxes to make sure you're getting the very best chance of best selling. Yeah, so that's what that course is about. It's selfpublishingformula.com. And yes, it's under his school. So yes, selfpublishingformula.com is where you'll find it. And do you want to give your website as well for your books? Oh, sure. susiekquinn.com. You'll find it on Amazon more easily, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Susie. That was great. You're welcome, Joe.
So I hope you found the interview with Susie interesting. I certainly found the course useful and it is a business-minded look at a craft topic and Susie is very focused on practical advice and I certainly learned a lot from it. So next week, I have a great show for you on how to revive a flagging author career with the lovely Michael Brent Collings. And Michael Brent is one of the favourite guests on the show. He's also a friend of mine. I, I count him as a friend, even though we've never met in person. He's one of the people I've developed a friendship with through the podcast. And he generously helped me earlier in the year when I decided to reboot my own fiction brand after letting things slide a little. And in the discussion, we talk about how he went from delivering pizzas and almost giving up on being an author to rejuvenating his fiction career and taking things up to a new level. And I know you'll find it fascinating. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.